Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. You've reached us at episode 235, and that means we're after something new, a new series of episodes, shockingly, in two parts. This is the start of a series of episodes with Al Elliott. He's a business owner, an entrepreneur, and the co-host of the Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture podcast with his wife, Leanne. Today, we're going to talk to Al a little bit about what can running a pub teach you about being a manager? And he's going to tell us a little bit about what an entrepreneur is. I don't think we've really had anybody break down what that is on the show. And then we're going to explore whether entrepreneurs actually make good leaders. What stood out to you, John? That discussion with Al about his thoughts on leadership and exactly what that means in management. I thought those were really interesting things to hear and, you know, relevant to me personally. But I think anybody who wants to be a leader, who wants to lead and potentially wants to be a manager, manage, those would be interesting sections to listen to. And he talked a little bit about solving the problem that you actually know something about. I thought that was really, really cool. Let's get right to episode 235, part one of our conversation with Al Elliott. AI Elliot. Oh, sorry. I'm reading that wrong. Al Elliott, welcome to the Nerd Journey podcast. Thank you so much for uh, for for, for um, introducing me and for for inviting me. This is uh, this is cool. I'm I'm a big fan. Thanks a lot for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do, just as an introduction? Yeah. So uh, my name's Al, and I'm a business owner. I'm also one half of the podcast Truth Lies and Workplace Culture. Um, and my background is generally marketing consultancy and also building businesses. But of late in the last sort of year, I seem to have been putting my entire time into building this podcast, Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture, um, with my wife, who is a bona fide expert, and I am not. Um, and it's been a really cool journey and really just interesting to learn a bit more about the podcasting world. And also, it's just opened up so many different opportunities for meeting people I wouldn't otherwise have met, like you guys. So I suppose at this point in time, I probably would describe myself as a podcaster rather than actually a marketing owner or business owner, but I suppose I am all three. I think that uh, you're being very generous by saying a highlight is meeting us, but uh, I really do appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, very kind of you. How did your career get started, do you think? Uh, there Usually it's fits and starts, but uh, we'd love to hear your story. Hmm. 
I think it's with a question like that, it's kind of tough because you don't know whether how much to go into it. So I'll give you sort of very high level. Sure. I went to university. I, I failed all my A levels. I don't know what the equivalent is in, in North America, but A levels are like what you do after your when you're sort of 17, 18. So I failed all of them apart from one, which was maths. So I, the only thing I could do at university was maths teaching. So I went and did two years of that and absolutely hated it. One of the, I remember there's a key moment here. I went in to do what's, what's called teaching practice. So you'd go into school and you'd kind of, and you, this would be your first first sort of like contact with the enemy and you'd meet the children and you'd go in there and, be, and, pretend, to be a te- <laughs> and you'd pretend to be a teacher for a, a little while. And the headmaster sat down and said, I think you've got some potential here. You know, in, if you work hard in 25 years time, you could be sitting where I am and you could be earning upwards of £38,000 a year. And I thought, are you kidding me? I'm going to work for 25 years and I'll only earn £38,000. No, thank you very much. So pretty much within about six weeks of that, I quit that course. I was like, nope, not for me. Went into pub management, bar management, um, did my degree in that, which was a degree which only lasted three years. And I and I did one year of it and then they cancelled it because it was rubbish. But it still let me go in there and start running pubs, um, which was cool. So I started um, running a big bar in Manchester. Uh, sort of £80,000 a week place, which back in 1999, that's, you know, that was a lot of money. Um, and I learned loads about management, about uh, recruitment, about managing a bar, about dealing with drunk people, about dealing with doormen, that kind of thing. Um, and then I got my own pub at 21, tw- sorry, 22 in Leeds. Took that from like the 27th worst pub in the area to the third best pub in the area, using all the marketing stuff that I'd learned from my boss at the previous um, pub in Manchester. And I was like, I'm on top of the world. This is brilliant. And then money started going missing. And long story short, I got sacked because they thought I was taking the money, even though I rung them up and said, there's money going missing. I don't know where it's going. And so I got sacked. So there I was at like 22, qualified, did my degree in pub management. I'd got some great results in pub management and I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, what do I do now? So I got the only job that would take me, which was working commission only door to door. And so I did that for about a year. That was simultaneously the best and worst thing that has ever happened to me because you learn lots of ways in which people can tell you to go away most of which i wouldn't be able to repeat on this podcast but it did help me to learn about sales and people and how to deal with people and how to knock on someone's door and basically just get their attention and you know you're someone who's unwanted and so it's it was so interesting and it taught me a load in sales so i did a few more sales jobs and then i started my first company which was uh, it's a company called Give Me Some Beer. Not the brilliant, not the best name, but it was basically Uber, but 2002, where we would bring you beer at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and uh, we saw some sights and we had some cool times. But ultimately, the licensing law changed in the UK. Um, it meant that then supermarkets could be open 24 hours, whereas before in the UK, they were, they, you couldn't get alcohol after 11 o'clock at night. So I was the only one who could do that. And so my business just folded and I'd borrowed about 100 grand. 103 to be precise and the business folded i went from twenty thousand a week to like 700 pounds a week and went personally bankrupt two of my houses that i bought both got repossessed and i was sat there and i was like well that's not gone to plan <laughs> so uh, just to give you kind of timestamp, that was about sort of 29 at the time wasn't cool so that's when i started the property company which I will go into if you want me to, but I feel like I might have gone on a little bit. You might, I might have given you more than you were, you actually wanted there in the, as an answer to that question. I want to go back to the pub management for a second. So you're essentially running business operations for the facility itself, yeah? 
Yeah, I was a deputy manager for that for that pub. There was two deputy managers and a manager. And before that, you had not had anyone that you managed, right? Not really. I'd worked like at weekends and nights in a in a bar. So, and I was experienced enough to be able to tell someone who was a year younger than me what to do. But no, I hadn't really. And I'd done the theoretical stuff at university, but never actually properly managed someone. No. What would you tell someone after having that experience that they need to be able to do? When they become a manager of people, wherever they are, here's what you need to make sure you do that either I didn't learn until later or or I figured out eventually. I think the first thing is something not to do, and that is not to treat people you manage as friends. Um, they can be friends, but not primarily, you know, you're not there to be their friend. And also just to be really comfortable in being able to say, please go and do this without having to back it up by saying, please go and do this because this needs doing and this needs doing. And, you know, if you don't do it. And I was so awkward and clumsy when I was managing people because I would be, you know, I, I was 22 and these kids were like 19 or something. And I was like going, oh, can you please go and clean that table over there? Because um, it needs cleaning. I'm like, why have you said that's redundant? It was ridiculous. So I think I didn't have the confidence in myself to just tell people what to do because they needed doing. Now, that said, it's been a long time since I've managed people, and I've learned so much from Leanne. Leanne is an exceptional manager, an exceptional manager. And there is so much that she puts into management, so much that she dissects every single part of management that I had absolutely no idea. I thought bosses were people who just bossed people around. They went, go and do this and come and get your wages. And I think that... If I was to give advice to someone in my, who's young, who's a young manager now, I'd say, just learn about coaching, learn about people, learn what it is you're doing, because you're not just telling people what to do and sitting in your chair and, you know, playing on, playing snake on your Nokia 8210 as it was back then. It was so much more than that. So I feel like I've not really given you a great answer to that, but I think I would summarize it. I think I would summarize it as being a boss isn't just telling people what to do. Being a boss is understanding human psychology, is caring about people who you lead. And more important, talking of leading, is just being someone who people want to be around and want to follow, as opposed to standing at the back, shouting at them to go and do things. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think your answer was a lot better than you thought. How about you, John? Yeah, you said several things there, starting with having confidence to ask people to do things. Obviously, context is sometimes good, but sometimes you just need them to do something and you don't have time to give them context. But I think you also hinted at building that relationship so that you have the not just the role power to tell them to do that, but the relationship power where they trust you because you've built up that credibility in the past and now they see that you just don't have time to do it or else you would have given them context. That is an excellent summary. And I think you've just, you've just made me think that a great leader is someone who, that people who are being led by this person will look around and go, what can I do to get us further, get us closer to where we want to be? So on, even in the, like, the daft example of working behind a bar, if, a, if you've got a great leader who's got a great vision and you're on board with that, then... You don't even need to be asked to go and clear tables and get glasses and get them all back and go and change a barrel because you're going, well, this isn't an impediment to where we're going. 
even on a very, very micro scale. So I'll go off and do it straight away because I want to follow this person. I want this person to lead us towards where we want to go, whether it's like a revenue target, whether it's a growth target, whatever, whatever. So I think what you just said there, John, was so insightful and much better than what I said because you just summed it up perfectly, I think. That's the John White effect. <laughs> that's that's part of our jobs is to is to listen to people and then echo back to them. Like what we're asking you to do is in the moment, think of something. And then if we can do the work of summarizing, you know, then that's, you know, we have the time and, and the separation to do that. You just said something else there, which was being somebody who the employees that you're managing want to actually follow and think of things that will accomplish the goal, which implies that the leader has a strong vision of what the goal is and has communicated that to the employees. So that's a, another really interesting uh, aspect of that that just bubbled to the surface there. So, And that actually sounds like one of the qualities that makes for a decent entrepreneur. You have to have that vision. You have to have people that want to follow you and take part in it. Yeah, I am curious, and I've never, I've not read any studies on this, I'm sure there are, whether entrepreneurs make good leaders. I don't know, because I, the way I, the way I look at it, being an entrepreneur, someone once explained to me, entrepreneur, two things I once said. First of all, if you can spell it, you're not one, um, which made me chuckle. Um, and secondly, um, was that entrepreneurs, it's like comes from the French or the Latin to take from between or something like that. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I see an entrepreneur as being able to say, there is a problem. I think we can fix it using X. They know at the back of the mind, it's probably going to be Y that fixes it, but they won't get to Y until they've done X. And so they go out there and fix things. And as soon as it's fixed, they lose interest. And of course, this is just based on my experience and people who I know who are entrepreneurial is that when there's no pain, when there's no problems, when they've got to a certain level, they go, okay, I'm out. I'm off to go and do something else because I'm bored. Whereas that's where great leadership will come in. And that's why, you know, an operator or an ops director is fantastic and is necessary for all of the Reed Hoffmans in the world who are going to go off and just find another problem to solve. And the other part of that, I think, with entrepreneurialism is quite interesting is that I found myself doing it. If you solve a problem and you go, great, everything's working well, then you go and try and find start another fire so you can put it out, which is the worst thing you can do as a leader because you want everyone to be calm and, okay, it's all expected. This is what's going to happen in the next Q2, Q3, Q4. As far as we're concerned about tomorrow, let's go and do something cool. Let's go and poke something till it breaks and then we can fix it again. It, at their core, true entrepreneurs are just problem solvers and they are hopeless human beings, in my opinion. This kind of speaks to something that we just recently had a conversation about, which is the the construct of pioneer versus settler versus town planner, which I'm sure you've heard before. I only, but please do, please do out, uh, explain because I've heard it, but I don't really understand it. Sure. There's the, I think the mentality of the pioneer who goes out and is trailblazing and goes out into the wilderness, which is, I think what you were equating with the entrepreneur, you know, I need to be out there you know, solving this problem, you know, breaking new ground. And then there's the settler who comes behind and says, oh, you found a place. Let's try to build something here so we can stay. And then there's the town planner who I think what you were referring to as kind of the professional management 
who takes over and and builds something sustainable and long term with you know steady growth i think in this uh you know applying that model to what it is that you're talking about so a good pioneer doesn't necessarily make a good town planner because maybe the the skills are different maybe the mentality is different for one person to have both sets of skills is is probably very possible it's just does that one person want to do both and then there's the settling phase the the in between phase where you're transitioning from one to the other and you know sometimes if you don't do that right you never get to the town <laughs> you you the settlement fails right is that is that because the pioneer didn't find a good place not necessarily sometimes you know the settlers weren't prepared and and didn't do a good job so you know each each phase in that model has its own set of skills its own mentality and is important i've heard there's a I don't know if this is true, but I read somewhere that Disney, they'd never allow, allow what I think they call the Imagineers. They never allow those people to deal with the accountants or that kind of thing. They're just never allowed to meet because the whole point of exactly as you said there, the town planner, the town planner is going to stifle, you know, the pioneer and the pioneer is just going to blow the town planner's head off because he's going to go, oh, we could go and do another one. It's like, no, we've got a town. Let's not go and find another one. Go, yeah, yeah, let's go and do another one. So I think it's, um, I, I think that that analogy is just fantastic. And I've heard it, I've heard people allude to it, but I've never heard it explained like that. And I think it's really cool. Yeah, I think what you're saying is, you know, is an entrepreneur a good leader is an interesting question. And it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be like a, and a good entrepreneur doesn't mean that you have to be a bad leader. You just have to have the mentality and the skills to kind of cross the the phases. And not everybody wants to do that. Some people are only motivated by the pioneering part. And once things get too settled, they look around and say, actually, I need to get out of here. I need to blaze some more trails. I need to find new wilderness you know, and, and that's where they find joy. And, you know, that doesn't mean that they're, they would be bad at being settling or settlers or being bad at being a town planner. It's just not what they're motivated by and what they want to do. And some people cross all phases, right? They love the pioneering, they love the settling, and they love the town planning part. Can those people be as good at all three, you know, as one thing if they just focused on that one thing? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on the person, I'm sure. Well, you look at the likes of Steve Jobs and, you know, Steve Jobs is an exceptional visionary, was an exceptional visionary, but he was also apparently, according to his autobiography, well, it's biography, sorry, he was apparently a horrible person to be around, like a deeply unpleasant person. And so to what, what takes you from zero to 10 million is probably not the same person going to take you from 10 million to a hundred million. Then you need the Tim Cooks, the guy at Google, I forget his name, Sunil, I think. You need the the CEO. You don't need the founder because the founder's there to go, like you said, the pioneer. And there the probably are people who, out there who've got, an, who's amazing at all three, but I've not met any. I think this comes down, this is just a theory. I think this comes down to the difference between build and maintain. Like, I like to build things or I like to maintain things or I might be, I might like to do a little bit of both. Uh, and I'll tell you why. I was at the RSA security conference several weeks ago, and they were talking about the chief information security officer's career path. And that after three years, they have the choice to go faster and accelerate the progress they're making, to keep at it 
same pace or to slow down a little bit because the organization can't keep up with change. And one of the things the speaker said was you need to figure out if you like to build programs or if you like to maintain programs. If you like to build them and it's already established here, might be time to go elsewhere. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that it's the same with in terms of sales, in terms of marketing, um, in terms of people, um, in terms of creating teams like the IBM Tiger teams that Tom Peters used to talk about. You know, I'm sure in every organization there are people out there who want to go and change something. And, you know, the Skunk Works, Apple, they want to go and change things. Same with developers. There are some amazingly talented developers out there who will just in a weekend create an MVP and then lose interest because they don't want to maintain. They want to create. I think there's a fancy word for like flow state or something, but I think of it as when you're doing some work and you look up and you go, it's four o'clock and you thought it was about one. And that time when you're doing that work, if you can look back and if you can recognize when you're doing that, if you can look back at the time where time has just disappeared from you, that's the work you were born to do. That's the work that excites you, invigorates you. Don't try and be the person who builds a company and then leads it through to, you know, Warren Buffett. Fantastic. He's done a great job. But Charlie, his uh, Charlie Munger, I think his business partner, he spends like eight hours a day reading reports. Don't try and be charlie munger if you're a warren buffett don't try and be a you know a tim cook if you're a jobs just understand what you're good at just embrace it and just stop trying to be good at everything because you in my opinion i don't think you ever will be i think you're going to be exceptional at one very tiny small thing and just accept that you're not going to be great at everything else and you're just going to be adequate at everything else that's my opinion now that sounds quite negative and i don't mean it to be i think it's more you take the positive of going how amazing are you at this thing? Oh, that's cool. Just lean into it rather than, you know, you're only going to be good at 1% of things you're ever going to do. That's right on. I mean, you can't develop the kind of expertise that makes you stand out from the rest of the pack if you focus on too many things at once. It's interesting because it's also kind of in conflict or there's a tension with an effect that we've heard about before, which is the the generalist versus the specialist, right? If you specialize too deeply and the world changes, which it always is changing, then it's not, it's very difficult to survive because maybe the world has changed in a way that undercuts your ability to deliver beer at 3 (laughs) a.m. as an example, right? So you, if you're very, very good at that exact thing and, and not looking out for other things and not saying like, actually is, is the beer the important part or is it the late night delivery? And what other things do people need delivered late at night? Could it be headache medicine? Could it be, you know, stomach medicine? You know, maybe there's a bunch of other things, uh, that they don't want to actually leave and, uh, that's just the the thing that jumps into my mind, right? The good generalist is going to be able to adjust to uh, changing technology, changing economy, just changing circumstances or context in general. I think that you're right, though. You need to find what it is that you're good at, but that isn't necessarily the same thing as deep specialization in a way that doesn't allow you to adjust. I totally agree. And I think there's so many different examples out there. For example, there's a programming language, I think it's called, I've only ever seen it written down, it's C-O-B-O-L, Cobble, I think. And so um, from what I've read is that most of the major banks still use it, even though it's like 60 years old. 
So, yes, if you only ever worked in COBOL and that was the only thing you could ever do, you know, you're a bit, you're in trouble now because there's not many apps, new apps built with it. But if you understand software architecture, if you understand the basics of it, and it just so happens that COBOL is the language you use, but you can also just as easily move to PHP or Rust or anything Go or anything that's like, you've learned the basics of it. And I think that if you talk about entrepreneurialism, the reason why entrepreneurs often make, often create lots of different things, not all of them work, is because not because they're good at starting a company that sells beer. What they're good at is looking at what the problem is, listening to what people are saying, this needs to happen, and then creating an MVP to go out there and satisfy that need and just test it. And I think that, that I've, I've got this idea for a book that I want to write called, uh, called Be Rich, Not Right. And I think when I meet people who are saying, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to start a business, and you go, great, and you go, right, so this is what's going to happen. So we are going to produce this product, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and um, I'm, I'm convinced it's going to work. And I was like, hang on a minute, you want to be right, but most entrepreneurs aren't right. My, my wife's brother-in-law um, started off, I think he was selling stuff for uh, for hairdressers, and then he accidentally knocked something into a bath of water and, and invented a brand new thing that now is sold across Walmart, sold across the world, you know, multimillionaire, because he knocked something, he was an idiot, and knocked something into a bath and made this brand new product. So I think that that knocking something into a bath is what most entrepreneurs do. They start, they're good at recognizing a problem, but they're also really good at recognizing when they're not quite satisfying and being a, and the ability to go, okay, that's not right. Like, what was it? Um, I'm sure Instagram started off as a as a photo storing app or a game or something, and then they pivoted because they understood. So their skill wasn't starting a photo storing app. Their skill wasn't even starting a social media uh, company. Their skill was looking at what people want and then recognizing it and pivoting to give people what they want. And I think that's where the most successful business owners and probably leaders are, is looking at what the need is and saying, what do people really want out of their life? What's stopping them? What's in? What's getting in the way? Is there a way I can remove that? Or can I augment that journey in a way? Or can I give a stepping stone or a bridge over this obstacle? And I think that's where a great leader and a great entrepreneur, that's where it will converge because they're looking at what people want, what's stopping them, and they spend all their time on this what's stopping them and try and remove that so that people can get what they want. Removing those blockers. Yeah, I like that. One thing you have to remove the blockers from is getting investors to say yes. I don't think we really talked to anyone, Al, who has had to go and seek out investors. Or maybe we have had guests who have done it, but we've never gone into detail. What's that like as an entrepreneur? And how does one handle that? I have to be honest and say that I've not done investment in the way that, you know, the Silicon Valley... Your, you know, your pitch decks, all that kind of stuff. My investment was institutional. It was from a bank. So I might, I probably don't have the answer that you're looking for there. Um, I've got minor investments from, you know, the, what's the three Fs? Friends, families, and fools. Um, is supposedly, you know, the, the, the three Fs that you get investment from. But, but generally it was from the bank, which was more of a transaction than it was a kind of a relationship building. So I'd love to be able to speak to this, but I don't think I'm qualified enough because I literally went to a bank with a business plan and a big cheesy grin. And then when they wouldn't give me a loan, I said, oh, my company's now, this is 2000, my company's now called, give me, or 2002, my company's now called, give me some beer.com. 
And they went, okay, we're investing in .com, so there's your loan. So it wasn't, it was none of the series A, B, C, anything kind of that. So I wish I could be, I could help you with that, but I don't think I'm qualified really to talk talk to that. It's the first time I've heard the three Fs though. There's another great sort of around investments that I heard, I'm sure you've heard this, that when someone with money meets someone with experience, the person with experience gets money and the person with money gets an experience. And I thought that was just fabulous. And that just explains exactly how people win the lottery and then they're bankrupt in six months' time. I think that was brilliant. Can you tell us a little bit about your next venture, the property ownership venture that you uh, owned and operated and scaled? This is interesting based on what we've just said and something I don't think I've really properly thought about, but I wasn't skilled. You were saying your skill wasn't building a company that that delivered drinks. It wasn't. It was finding out there was a problem. There was a problem that people couldn't solve. Um, Interestingly, maybe not interesting, I don't know, maybe your audience couldn't decide, but um, there was, at the time, there was no way in which you could sell alcohol legally in the UK after hours. So I found a way, which was that if you took a swipe of someone's card, but didn't put them, didn't take the money till the next day, that was counted. Your sale was only consummated during what was called permitted hours during the next day. So I found a way to actually basically take a swipe of someone's card, credit card at three o'clock in the morning and the sale wasn't finished. It wasn't consummated. So therefore I wasn't breaking the law because I'd, I'd only put it through the next day. So it was that kind of thing. So I was like, okay, there's a problem. This is an interesting way. Um, and I say this because it's relevant to the property. So when I got repossessed, uh, both my houses got, I got an investment flat in Manchester and I got a house in um, a place called Bradford, which is near Leeds in Manchester, in um, Yorkshire. So these both got repossessed and it was quite an eye-opening experience going bankrupt, having your house repossessed, losing all your money um, and then not knowing what to do. But it was also informative because I was like, this is interesting. I now know more about repossession, bankruptcy, about not having money than the average person. I wonder if I could start a company that helped people who are getting repossessed, but also at the point we a certain percentage of them I say you've got a house it's worth a hundred thousand pounds we'll buy it from you for seventy thousand and we'll rent it back for you to you for as long as you want with the option to buy it back at the same price in 10 years time and this is something which hadn't really been done before there was lots of people who were sharks who'd go out there and go oh well we'll give, yeah we'll give you a good price for your house and then they're, they're like on the day before you complete they'll be like oh I'm sorry the price has gone down by ten thousand and then you they just You'd rent it for six months, they'd kick you out. There's lots of people who are doing that. But this was the first one that was ethical. And it was based on my experience of, I've been repossessed. I looked at it and go, what the heck am I going to do right now? Now I've got no, you know, my house is gone. And I could sit there and I could, if someone's really, really in the mire and they're like, I feel like, I just feel like I wake up and like my day is going to be horrible. I know what that felt like. So I could sit in front of them and I could say to them, let's structure a deal that will solve this problem. Let's be honest. This is probably the deal you shouldn't do because if we buy your house, by the way, just people who are listening who are astute going, how come you're bankrupt and buying houses? The lad who worked for me in the beer company, um, who's about five years, no, a bit long, a bit older, a bit six or seven years younger than me, um, he was holding the mortgages. I couldn't get any mortgages. So even now, all the properties we own in a partnership, he holds the mortgages because he was mortgage worthy. I wasn't. So I would sit there with people who, and they'd had five people round and, and to, to solve their problem. And all five of them had gone, oh, well, your house worth a hundred grand, I'll give you 60 grand for it. And then if you don't, if you don't sign today, it'll be go down to 50 grand on Friday. 
And I would sit there and go, look, the worst thing you can do is sell your house at a discount to us. However, if there's no other option for you at this point in time, then the only alternative is it gets repossessed and you never have it. So if this is right for you, then you should do it. But just bear in mind, it's not a good deal for you. And just by approaching it that way, totally change the way things happen. So we, you know, we were sitting down there with, with, with people who are, who are like five days away from being repossessed. We'd go to court with them and the repossession hearing. And we would talk to the judge and we'd go, look, we're going to buy this house. We, please stop the repossession or pause it for 56 days, which is like a legal thing. It's got to be multiple of 28 or something. Please stop it for 56 days. Allow us to, to do this, to buy this house, to rent it back to them. And then if we've not done it in 56 days, you can repossess. And the solicitors for the lenders were obviously very, very annoyed with that because they wanted to repossess, get the repossession order and get the house back. But it was just... Again, looking and seeing what, where's the problem? What do people want? What's stopping them from getting there? Can I create a product or a service that will bridge that or get them over that obstacle? Like you said, Nick, get them over that obstacle. Yes, I can. And can I make it sweet for them by saying they can buy it back for the, pri- you know, the, the price that we paid for it? And bearing in mind, we're not, if it's a hundred grand house, we paid 70 grand for it. They buy it back for a hundred grand. They wouldn't buy it back for 70. So we've still got that equity in there and it was adjusted for, um, you know, for house prices and stuff. So we were locking in our equity. And in actual fact, no one's ever bought one back um, from us. But the way we presented it was very much like, this is a problem. I think we can solve it. This is the fairest I can possibly make it while still making it commercially viable for us to do. And do you want to do it? And we bought like 39 houses in 18 months just using that that method. And also, let's be honest, we also helped about 250 people with a remortgage or a debt management plan or even going bankrupt or something like that, because that was the better solution for them rather than selling the house to us. I was like, you shouldn't. There's other options available to you. Don't do that. Go off and do this debt management plan. Go off and do a remortgage that will give you the cash to pay off this. Go bankrupt. You know, you're not going to go in prison. It just means you can't get a mortgage for five years. So I think that it all comes down to both of what you were saying there is it's not about a skill in selling beer. It's about a skill in going, what is the problem Let's look at this very creatively. Let's imagine that we can do, we could solve this problem with whatever we in, in front of us and then just creating something that people actually wanted because it was designed to help them, not help me. And of course it helped me in the, was it Jim Rohn says, the quickest way to get what you want is help other people get what they want. Well, it made us very wealthy, but it was never about how do we become millionaires. It was about how do we help someone who's got a massive problem, who can't sleep at night? How can we find the best solution for them? Is the the business based on? Uh, I'm just trying to understand the, the the profit part of the business. Is it that the rents would be higher than the mortgage? Yeah, it's a standard at the, at this stage. We're talking. This is what 15 years down the down the road. Then we have mortgages, which are obviously less than our rents. One part of the business is that every month we have a surplus in terms of rents come come in, expenses, mortgages go out, and we have a surplus. Um, and that gives me and my business partner a little bit of cash each month. The real value of the business is the equity that we've got in the properties, because some of these properties we bought for 60 grand and now they're worth 200 grand. So there's very much that sort of like, that's the value of the businesses in the equity, but actually it does throw off income. Although, unfortunately, I'm not going to get political, but in the UK, and I think it's possibly the same in the US, um, is it's not, it's not a great time to be a landlord. Tax is making it awfully difficult to make money. Got it. But it's it's interesting that it wasn't, 
again, the specialty in just doing the mortgage and the renting. It's it's the kind of having the general experience and across, you know, several different aspects about being in trouble with one's mortgage that helped you to probably get a lot of business because you could point to people and say, well, we actually talk them out of doing business with us. But for you, this is maybe the best bad option. Best bad option. I love that. And you built a business based on something we talk about a lot, which is relatable experience. The experience you had directly translated into the business you built. And that is a skill I think that people overlook when they're trying to get a different job. What What are the things that I am doing today that actually translate into making me good and qualified for this other thing that seems really interesting on the surface, but may not look and feel exactly like what I'm doing right now. 100%. It's about relatable and, you know, the entrepreneur's dog food. Um, a lot of businesses were started to to solve the problem. Basecamp, perfect example. David Heinemann, DHH, I'm sure you know his name, and I can't remember it now, but he started. they started Basecamp because they wanted someone, something to manage their projects with their original you know with their clients so i think that it doesn't matter what you're doing if you have experienced the problem that you're trying to solve for other people i always think you're going to win because someone coming in they could they could interview a hundred potential customers and say what was it like when you were getting repossessed compare that to someone who has had the letters who's had the mortgage company sitting in their house going if you don't pay this we're going to have the keys in six weeks time that's a different experience. Yeah, you, you actually have the empathy as opposed to somebody who can just imagine it. Yeah, I, I can see that. It's, it's a really strong head start, if nothing else. So how did you scale the business? Because this is something where you started it, but you also got to kind of go through a growth phase. I love the idea of solving a problem in the fairest or most ethical way possible with the end goal of helping others. Because Al said they were recognizing a problem and really they were finding a better way to solve it than they had seen anyone else do. And the reason they were able to execute on that is because he had the experience of being in the situation he was trying to help people get out of. Yeah, totally agree with that. He had personal experience, and that was even the inspiration for, for starting the business. And I thought that it was interesting to hear him kind of describe himself as a teacher and instructor, even though, you know, earlier on he had talked about not really enjoying teaching to kind of tease out a part to say, oh, here's the part that I didn't like, and here's the part that I really enjoyed. So you can see that you know, continue on in his career, you know, the things that he's doing are actually helping to teach people. The, the podcast is helping to teach people, the one that he and uh, Leanne run together. So it, it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing to hear about. Maybe the entrepreneur spirit is a little bit more resilient than 
we often give them credit for or more resilient than the average person, I would say. One of the things that Al embodies to me is he doesn't mind testing an idea and accepting that it's probably not going to be exactly the right way to solve it the first time. They have to test probably a few times to get it right. And really that's a demonstration of humility and perseverance throughout this iterative process. Yeah, very true. Very true. There's probably something to the idea that the people who don't have that just probably end up failing out right away <laughs> because they just get stomped down. So it's it's the ones who have that perseverance and, and humility and, and willingness to experiment who survive in the long run, right? who eventually become successful, you know, are able to make the pivot when they realize um, rather than getting you know, ego-driven and saying, no, this is what I think is important. Let the let the customers tell you what they like. Really love that. It's funny you use the word pivot because I'm still thinking about the Josh Duffney persevere and pivot discussion. I think it fits really well here because Al was saying that entrepreneurs oftentimes get bored. They get ready to go on to the next thing because they want to solve that next problem and essentially their process of ideation and creativity isn't something that they can apply to this situation anymore because it's already been built or we've already built a solution to this problem. So I need a new problem so I can, I can build something. And I think some self-reflection is needed in each of us to be able to see, are we getting bored with what we're doing? And if we are, maybe it is time to make some kind of pivot, even if I'm not an entrepreneur. Chris Williams got bored, what, every three years, if we recall from his the discussions with him. But if you're not really giving it some thought, you might not know. Yeah, the situation that's best for you, right? And that, I think, what you just described to me, you know, when I was listening to Al describe it, you know, obviously is what made me think of that trimodal IT, the pioneer settler town planner model. And Maybe a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, kind of fall into that pioneer mode where they want to be out in the wilderness, like tripping over, uh, you know, fallen trees and uh, in blazing trails and where the excitement is. And when it comes to town planning, that's just boring, right? That's, you know, I'd rather be out in the wilderness again. You don't have to be the entrepreneur to try to figure out in yourself what it is is the most interesting to you to be a pioneer to be a settler or to be a town planner. You can do that same thing, you know, in the IT world, like going out and discovering kind of the bleeding edge of, of technology tools, you know, however that relates to your job, like that being the pioneer. And it doesn't mean quitting your job and starting a business. It's, hey, wh what are the, the tools in the future that might be relevant? Like, you know, if we keep on going in the direction that we're going, or if we keep on, you know, have to be out there ahead of the curve. And maybe your maybe your creative iteration that you enjoy is optimization. It's right. already been built, but I would really like to see if I can take this thing that someone started with and make the sculpture even more magnificent. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fine. There's an important place in the ecosystem for people who like that. And I think that, you know, there's an important place in the ecosystem for any one of those those modes of uh, thought or, you know, comfort. So it's important to recognize in oneself what it is that one likes to do. 
which mode one likes to be in. Then maybe it might be different which mode one is most successful in. Maybe you hate being a pioneer, but you excel at it. Maybe you love being a settler, but you're terrible at it. You know, so you have to kind of figure out like a way around that. You know, maybe there's like a, a hybrid mode or or something that falls, you know, in between those two kind of extremes, right? You need your area of destiny. There you go. Was that episode 20, I think? I also really enjoyed hearing what Al had to say about leadership, you know, inspiring others to execute on a clear vision. You know, there are a couple of things there, right? First of all, having the clear vision, it's either a vision that was, you know, articulated to you as a leader and you go through the process of clarifying it and polishing it and making it crystal clear and then are able to articulate that to others and then also inspire them to, to execute on that vision, right? It's multifaceted, that, that definition of a leader. Really, really enjoyed that conversation and I cannot wait to hear the second half. But you're going to have to. But you will have to. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at B Journeyman. For Nick Cordy, at Network Nerd underscore. Signing off. Adios. Adios.